You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 8. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. We're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7 to 10 is the first part, and I would like to pray together before we begin our class session. We bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, our great high priest, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who did indeed offer the perfect sacrifice, who lived first the perfect life. Lord, you sent our Lord to obey, to obey completely, to obey absolutely, to obey all through life and to obey even to the point of death. And then, Lord, you pass through death and into the heavens and now sit at the right hand to intercede for us, to plead for us, to offer us your grace, to work to bring us to perfect salvation. And, Lord, I pray that as we study your word tonight, we would gain an ever greater appreciation for who you are in yourself just as much as what you have done for us. Teach us, Lord, to meditate rightly on all that you are and all that you have said. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we are indeed looking at Hebrews chapters 7 through, Lord willing, close, till the, close to the end of the book. Two units, Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 is one. Before we actually look at that section, what I would like to do is remind you of where we have been, where we are since we only meet once a week. There's a problem afflicting the church, the church most likely at Rome. The church primarily composed of Jewish converts, many of whom are hankering after Judaism again, uh, perhaps because of the possibility it offers for release from the danger of persecution, perhaps because they miss some parts of the ritual, the ritual of, of uh, atonement, the ritual that was so beautiful in the temple. There's something causing them anxiety, some persecution causing them anxiety and trouble. And now... Thinking of turning to Judaism, the church, some thinking of returning to Judaism, the church is, is uh, maybe starting to split a little bit. There is a group that is thinking about forsaking the assembly. The leaders of the church call on one man who is the author of the book of Hebrews to address the church. Uh, he is maybe their supreme leader. And he's not there, and so they call upon him and he writes. Now, this church doesn't just have the problem of external persecution, as we saw last week. Some of them are ignorant of the faith. Some of them have grown lazy in the faith. Some of them even are thinking about repudiating the faith entirely. Now, this week, we're also going to see that the group appears to have a problem of still feeling guilty, of being plagued by guilt. Again, maybe they long for the Jewish rituals that seem to offer such a clear-cut uh, release from sin. 
Maybe they're wondering about their continuance in sin. Maybe some members of the community have died before they had a chance to repent. Uh, but there seems to be a problem of guilt in this church. I'm going to just show you why I say that for a moment. Chapter 9, and verse 9, and then chapter 9, verse 14. Uh, chapter 9, verse 9 says, and it's in the middle of uh, a discussion of the tabernacle, and the way things are arranged. He says, this is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. That's verse 9. So, wondering about clearing the conscience. Then verse 14, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So, verse 9 there were sacrifices that couldn't clear the conscience. Now, verse 14, Jesus does clear the conscience. Verse 2 of chapter 10, I'm in the middle of a sentence almost, if it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and they would no longer feel guilty about sins. He keeps talking about the problem of guilt and a guilty conscience, which makes you think that somehow they were having some questions or some doubts as to whether, indeed, the problem of guilt had been solved. Now, we need to look at this in a couple of different ways. Now, one way to look at it is to realize that it might have been, at one level, very appealing. The Jewish sacrificial system, the tabernacle system, and later the temple system, was very appealing in certain ways. It seemed to offer a wonderful solution to the problem of guilt in a very attractive format. The format was very sensory. If you went to the temple or the tabernacle, you would have a feast for your senses. If you got there, you would, you would smell the aroma of fires burning. You would smell the aroma of incense, of perfume, of, indeed, also the perspiration of the priests who were working hard. You know, it's hard work to kill an animal and slaughter it and skin it and roast it. And that roasting, if we could just return to that for a moment. You know, there's a Bible verse that says the fat is the Lord's. And it has nothing to do with weight loss or weight gain programs. Now, the fat is the Lord's is a reference to the idea that the fat is what is best in an animal. Now, you know, today we think, well, low cholesterol, low fat, and all that kind of thing. But the truth is, there is no substitute for animal fat. When you smell a roast cooking, what you're smelling is not the lean stuff, it's the fat. And those crispy drippings and all that, you know, that's, that's what tastes good and it smells good. It was a feast for the nose. And I hate to say this if some of you didn't have supper, but, you know, that's just the way it is. Number two, it was a feast probably also for the ears, the songs of the priests singing and the Levites singing, this, the sound of priests and perhaps also prophets teaching, the bleeding of sheep, the flutter of doves' wings, the clatter of the hooves of bulls and of sheep and of goats, the sounds of animals being slain, of animals being moved around. It was a sensory experience. And then, of course, the eye, the tongues of flame on the altar, the clouds of incense rising, the beautiful raiment of the priests who had, you know, gold and jewels woven throughout their garments, a feast to the eyes. And, of course, the taste. 
even the taste of sacrificial meals and of eating and drinking with your friends. So it was a very impressive thing, especially maybe even for people like the Romans who didn't get there every, every year. You know, maybe just got there once in a lifetime, looked forward to it for 5, 10, 20 years, and then you remembered it the rest of your life, like you know, some great trip to, to Europe or to the mountains or something of that nature. And, of course, another thing that was attractive about that system was the rhythm of it. Once a year, you went to the tabernacle or the temple to have the chance to confess your sins. On that Day of Atonement, you knew, if you could go or if you couldn't go, that on that day you could gather up all your sins and take them all to the Lord and be forgiven of all your sins committed an entire year on that day. Wouldn't it be great? Can you just see this? Wouldn't it be great once a year to say, listen, today is a day I'm going to examine my life, think through all the sins I've committed, and then give them all to the Lord, and they're done. Wouldn't that be great? I know what some of you are thinking. You're being too theological. You're saying, we can do that every day. We can do that every Sunday. But I'm not asking you to be theological. I'm asking you to be emotional. Wouldn't it be great if once a year you could say, man, there goes that load for a whole year. How do you think that would be great? Well, the truth is you can do it any day. But the Day of Atonement sort of reminded you that there was a, a crisp, crisp, clean way of dealing with sin. And so there would be some attraction to that. And, and this is what's behind the scene that's going on here. Now, of course, again, there are some other things going on behind the scene. And some of those other things, of course, are that, as I said before, there's persecution coming, and there is this temptation to go back to Judaism, and the people are getting lazy somewhat and falling back into prior sins. What does the book of Hebrews have to say to all this? Chapter 7 to 10 are the answer to this question, we might say. Before we do that, though, I have to tell you one more thing. What I'm going to tell you from Hebrews chapter 10 doesn't work as well in our culture as it did 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 years ago. Because not only was there a problem back then, the problem now still exists as a very different problem, actually. The problem is the disappearance of guilt. Now, not that guilt itself is actually disappearing, but the concept of guilt is disappearing. So that when we talk about Christ as the remedy to guilt and his sacrifice as the remedy to guilt, sometimes we're like the Maytag repairman. Nobody really wants our services. So Jesus is the solution to the problem of guilt. You know, guess what? I don't have any guilt. I don't need that. Now, what's behind that? Before I even tell you what's behind it, let me tell you that it's even creeping into the church. People have observed that less and less sermons and Sunday school classes and less and less books and articles are written about hell. And one reason why less and less is written about hell is because people don't have any need for hell in their system. Hell is required for people who are guilty and need to be punished. But if nobody's guilty of anything, then you don't need any punishment. And so it's kind of logical, actually, that the concept of hell is slowly disappearing, as many people have observed, from Christian theology. In our culture today, there are many people who think no one is really guilty of anything. There are uh, people with guilt feelings, but they need to get over their guilt feelings and realize that the problem is 
that you have an overactive conscience. And of course, there are lots of victims in the world. But strange as it may seem, there are many victims, but no victimizers. There are very many people who hurt other people, but nobody ever did it on purpose. It was ignorant. It was, it was an act of ignorance or poor communication or because of, you know, something happened to them as children or they're expressing their inner rage or they're protesting. But nobody ever does anything wrong. That doesn't happen. I like to cite the case of Catherine Powers. Some of you might possibly remember her name from about four and a half, five, whatever, a number of years ago. She turned herself in after being on the run from the federal government for, oh, about 20-some years, 25 years more or less. She'd been a member of the Black Panthers in the late 60s. And when she did turn herself in, uh, it was because of really a very serious crime that she committed. Her goal was to rob a bank with a group of others and to use the proceeds from the bank robbery to buy explosives to blow up a track on which a train was going to be running carrying armaments, shipment of armaments from the Pentagon to one of the Army Depot centers, and they'd take those armaments to arm the revolutionaries and overthrow the American government. Now, things really, as you know, didn't turn out quite that way. But what did happen was that the robbery actually went sour very quickly. Alarm was sounded, a policeman responded, and the group, of which Powers was a member, shot him dead. And he left nine, left nine children uh, without a father, and uh, she took off. She was, she was a criminal, an accomplice in murder. She, she possessed multiple weapons, thousands of rounds of ammunition, and had planned it all very carefully. But when she turned herself in, she wanted to make it very clear that she did not do this out of a sense of guilt or shame or a debt. She came back because her life had become difficult. She'd become sleepless and restless and depressed and suicidal, and she realized she had to face her past to live with authenticity in the present. When she was interviewed, she said, I was naive and unthinking. The death of the policeman was shocking to me. I never meant to hurt anybody. I know that I must answer this accusation from the past in order to live with full authenticity in the present. And her husband explained, in case somebody missed the point, she did not return out of guilt. She was tired of telling lies. She wanted her life back. She wanted her truth back. She wanted to be whole. So why did she turn herself in? <laughs> well, I'm not sure why she turned herself in, but what did she say about why she turned herself in? Self-improvement. Self-rescue. But not, now whether she had a deep down, knew she was guilty or not, of course we don't know. But she certainly repudiated the idea that she was confessing a sin or confessing that she needed to pay for her crime or anything like that. So, in our culture, you know, actually her act makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. Her dialogue makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. The problem of guilt is one on which we have to sell people. There's a just God, there's an absolute standard, is fading away. Hebrews is ready to address this here in chapter 7 to 10. I want to just make sure we know where we are at the moment. In chapter 1, 1 through 2, 18, we had an initial vision of the grandeur of Christ. We have a vision of his, his deity, his position as a prophet, as a priest, as a king, as very God. And 
as the one who, is, who takes regard for us and is the author, the pioneer, the author, and the perfecter of our faith. He is also that opening section, chapters 1 and 2, end by saying he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Remember that? Then chapters 3 and 4 develop his faithfulness. Jesus was faithful in God's house, but how about you? Will you respond faithfully? And then uh, chapter 5, he starts to talk about Jesus as a great high priest. Remember from last time, he kind of interrupted himself and said, but you know, I want to get into this priesthood issue, but I'm not sure you're ready for it. Because you haven't necessarily been faithful. And Jesus has been merciful, but you haven't been true to him in his mercy. But now, at last, in chapter 7, he is ready to press on and give the burden of his book, the burden about the high priestly ministry of Christ. And, and what we need to do now is take a look at Melchizedek in chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 10. What I'll do here for a moment, though, however, is kind of get you involved and see if you can remember a thing or two about Melchizedek. He's going to be the, the uh, hero for a few verses. So what do you know about Melchizedek? Yes. Okay, he's a king of Salem. That's right. What, is, what does it mean? Let's see. Uh, there's something made of the names. What does Salem mean? Do you know what that means? Peace. That's right. That's right. And while we're on names, Melchizedek, what does that mean? That's right. Melchizedek means that Mel, Melech means king, and Sedek is righteousness. So king of righteousness. Does anybody know where he appears in the Bible? Okay, he's found in Genesis, right? What chapter? 14, very good. And what does he do in Genesis 14? Okay. Okay, here are two things. He blessed Abraham, right? And he received 10%. Now, there's somebody else. What, what started the whole scene off? Where does Melchizedek come in? Do you know? Where are we in the, in the narrative of the Bible? Yes. After a war in which, in which two parties are fighting. Boy, you know, that's... Uh, that's a safe answer, I'll tell you. I can't quibble with that whatsoever. I think, did we talk about tautologies last week a little bit? Were we using that word? Anyway. Okay. Abraham was going to rescue Lot, yes. Okay, he went up against a group of kings, four, five, six, maybe three, but, you know, less than ten, more than one. Okay. okay he went up against a group of kings to rescue Lot, and after it was all over, somebody came out to greet him. You know who it was? Who was it? Well, Melchizedek was one, but somebody else came to greet him. The king of Sodom came to greet him as well. The king of Sodom, as in the Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the king of Sodom said, here, let me give you some plunder. And Abraham said, no thanks, I don't want any plunder. Then Melchizedek came and said, I'll give you some bread and some wine. And he said, I'll take that. Now, that's an odd little scene. You might wonder what that means. But what happened was that Abraham liberated some of Sodom's people, and Sodom's king essentially said, Abraham, you did me a favor, and I'll do you a favor, which amounts to let's get into a little relationship here. Let's have a sort of a compact, you help me, I'll help you. And Abraham said, I want no part of that because of, of the wickedness of Sodom. And instead he got into a relationship with Melchizedek, who is king of Salem, king of righteousness. He came blessing and giving provisions and Abraham gave him 10% back. Now, that's in skeletal form what happened in the history of the Bible with Abraham and Melchizedek. Melchizedek is called not only a king, but something else. 
He is also called a priest. In fact, he is the first person who is called a priest in the Bible. Now, another question. Where does Melchizedek come from? What were, what were his parents' names? Nobody knows. What were, you know, what were some of his children? What happened to his line? Was, was that Melchizedek a believer? Certainly seems like it, right? Doesn't it? The way he's treated. And so what we have here is one of these people sort of appearing from nowhere, a little bit like Job, or a little bit like, in a different way, Abraham, who seems somehow to have knowledge of the true and living God, even though he doesn't come from Israel or from the line of, of Adam in any way that we can understand. He just appears, and then he blesses, and then he disappears. And that is what the author of Hebrews wants to pick up about Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verses 3 to 7, say that Jesus is like Melchizedek in that he appears uh, sort of from nowhere without a human origin or succession to bless. A priest, after the order of Melchizedek, has been predicted already in the Bible in Psalm 110, verse 4. And Hebrews develops it because when we consider Jesus as a priest, there is a problem. You know what the problem is with Jesus as a priest? By the way, let me just tell you quickly, this is the first time Jesus is called a priest in the entire New Testament. We're used to it. We say it a lot. But the truth is, really, it's the book of Hebrews. It's just about the only book that develops the priestly ministry of Christ. So what is the problem with calling Jesus a priest? Yes. He is not a Levite. He is not from the tribe of. He is not from the tribe of Levi. He's not, from the, he's not descended from Aaron and his sons. And so he's unusual. What's he from, by the way? He's from the tribe of Judah. Absolutely. And that's why he's a king. He's a Davidic king. So if we want to have, which Hebrews does, want us to have the insight that Jesus is king and priest, then we've got to go outside the normal spheres of the Old Testament where you either were a king or priest, and in fact the two were sharply separated because they were supposed to check and control and guide each other. So what we have here at last is someone who is a king, and a priest, Melchizedek. <laughs> Furthermore, one who appears to be appointed out of nowhere by God comes from nowhere because God appointed him even as it is with Jesus. Now, he even actually makes the point beyond this that Melchizedek is a greater priest than the Aaronic priests. And he does it in a kind of an unusual way. He makes a claim about the priesthood, the priests of Aaron. Do you know what it is? You're allowed to look at your Bible. You're allowed to cheat, get information from the pages of the Bible. Yes? Okay, that's one. They died. Jesus didn't. And sort of, in a way, Melchizedek didn't. He's kind of going to say. There's something else, though. Yes? Okay, they got their power through a genealogy, but Melchizedek and Jesus did not. They were appointed directly by God, not by human descent. And there's, there's something else yet. Okay, very good. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes, right, to Melchizedek. And when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, because Aaron is a descendant of Melchizedek, after a fashion, Hebrews says, after a fashion, the descendants of Abraham also paid the tithes. Particularly, Aaron in Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, showing that he needed to give a gift that Melchizedek was indeed 
the greater. So this is correct. We've hit, I think, the main points. Paying the tithes, appointed directly, and one who, is, who comes timelessly. One who does not die. Now, of course, the point is not that Melchizedek didn't die. And if you, you know, searched around the deserts of Saudi Arabia long enough, you'd find Melchizedek, you know, wandering around somewhere. The point is, rather, that we don't know anything about his death. And so his life has a certain timelessness. The best way I can illustrate this for you is by asking you, who are over the age of 30, I'll say. But if you want to play along, you're 27, that's okay, too. Um, but, you know, 30, 40, and 50-year-olds, and what I want you to do is picture one of your friends from high school that you have not seen since high school. Or maybe you saw him just, you know, one year later or two years later or her. What, what age is their face? Let's suppose you're 40 or 50 or 32 or something right now or 60 right now. What age is their face? Their, age is, their face is 17 or 18 years old. And if you would see them today, you, you would say to them, why did you send your mother? Right? So their face is kind of frozen. They're timeless. Their body, their voice, their hair is unchanged. Below these 10, 20, 30, 40 years since high school ended for you, okay? Because you haven't seen them age, it's as though they didn't age. That's what Hebrews is, is kind of working with. So now what he's going to do is tell us about the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. And follow with me if you would. I'm going to read verses 11 through about 16 here. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. What we said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, as it is written, as it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, new priesthood is needed because, 11 and following say, the old one could not attain perfection. By the old priesthood, verse 11, middle of the verse, the law was given. And we know this about the law. The law is not able to take us to perfection. The law shows us our guilt and our need. What he's saying is that the law and the old Levitical system are intertwined. The law sets up the standard. We violate the standard. We need a sacrifice. The sacrifice is a sort of a perpetual reminder that we're breaking the law. Every time a sacrifice is offered, it's reminding us that things aren't quite right. And the very fact, we'll talk about this more later, that the sacrifices have to be offered over and over again suggests that they never really quite worked. Anything you have to do over and over again is not exactly done. So we need a new order. We need an order in which there's a definite, final treatment of the problem of sin. Melchizedek is going to offer this through the, uh, sorry, Jesus, like Melchizedek, is going to offer this with the power 
of his indestructible life. In itself, Hebrews says, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, the law is weak, the law is useless, he says, in terms of bringing things to perfection. It makes nothing perfect. We need something better. We need something new. We need a cure for wickedness. And we need God not to remind us of our sin, but to write the law on our heart. The law is only a shadow. We need something new, a new order of things. That new order, he says, is the order of Melchizedek. That's chapter 7. Really, I just kind of covered 7, 11 to 28 in kind of a quick sweep. But then I want to go back and pick up some particular details from that. In chapter 7, verse 20, he says, I think 7, 20 and 21. 21 actually is where it is. 7, 21, 22, he goes on to say this. The Lord has sworn, 7, 21, and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is a priest forever, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, what does a guarantor do? A guarantor of a covenant. Guarantor of a contract. He, okay, he guarantees. He enforces. If the provisions aren't made, if, if you guarantee, let's say, somebody's loan, what happens? If they don't pay, you have to pay. And that's, what's, that's the point here. In Exodus chapter 24, 1 to 8, the people of Israel had just finished hearing the law of Moses. And after hearing the law and, and all the promises of God's, you know, all the, the rehearsal, rather, of God's goodness and leading them out of Egypt and describing uh, the way in which he should live, uh, Moses, chapter 24, verse 1, gathered the people, 1 and 2, and then he told all the people the Lord's words, verse 3, and they responded with one voice and said, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Now, some people have said that was their big mistake. They had one big chance to say to Moses, you know, Moses, this is pretty tough. I think, how about if we try to do two-thirds of it or something? Now, very, I'm being a little bit facetious, but the truth is that some theologians have actually taught that this was the central mistake of Israel. They went with, they accepted a covenant of law, and they should have held out for grace. That's actually taught, probably some of you here, have heard that. I don't believe that. I think that the law had, had been presented in a covenant love context. The law is not some onerous thing that you have to do, but, but because God has redeemed you, this is the way we should live. This is, this is the blessed life. This is living in the presence of God. And the law is not, again, some set of restrictions, but the law is actually designed uh, to show us what God is like. The law reflects God's nature. We should be, you know, we should honor our father and mother because God honors people. And we shouldn't kill because God is a life giver. And we shouldn't steal because God gives. And we shouldn't be unfaithful because God is a faithful God. And we shouldn't lie because God is a truthful God and so on. We should be kind to the poor and the widow and the orphan and the alien because God is kind to the poor and the widow and the orphan and the alien. Okay? So the law is good. And it was a very good thing that the Israelites did to say, Yes, we will take the, uh, the yoke of the law upon us. When they did, uh, Moses, verse 8, sprinkled, took blood from an animal and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
Now, there's a custom. Some of you probably know this. There was a custom in antiquity of sealing covenants with blood, right? And what happened was when you made a covenant, you would take, the, take an animal and cut it in half. How many of you know this? And cut it in half, and the parties would walk between the animal. And it was symbolically saying, may I be torn in half and killed, as this animal is torn in half and killed, if I am not faithful to this covenant. Well, guess what happened to the Israelites? They were not faithful to the covenant. And so what did they deserve? They deserved to be torn in half and killed. But Jesus, 7.22, is the guarantor of the covenant. What we deserve, he will bear. Yes. Uh, that was Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. So Jesus is the guarantor of the covenant. That's the first thing about the excellency of Jesus. Now some other excellencies come in rather rapid form. Now, the second one is that Jesus, unlike Old Testament priests, is, well, there's really two things about it. I'll read verses 23 and 24. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but Jesus lives forever because he has a permanent priesthood. In the Old Covenant, every priest had this weakness. He died. No matter how good he was, he died. No matter how wonderful the priest was, his ministry came to an end. But Jesus' ministry goes on forever. Verse 24 says, he has a permanent priesthood. It never ends. You can think about this with sports. See, athletes have a way of fading. The best athlete that there ever is has this weakness. He's going to get old. As I speak, Michael Jordan is at the tail end of his career. He is maybe still, maybe still the best basketball player in the world. But in a couple years, and I'll talk to the tape, by the time some people are listening to this, maybe he'll be passe. He'll be, you know, playing in celebrity all-star games or something. No matter how great he is, it ends. But Jesus, we might say, is the basketball player whose skills never fade. He never gets old. He never dies. He never wears out. His vertical leap never gets less. His hairline never recedes. He never loses a step. Nothing goes wrong at all. So that's the thing about humans. No matter how great you are, it will fade. But not Jesus. He lives forever to intercede. Verse 25. He saves completely. He saves. Now the little phrase there uh, in verse 25. He is able to save there's two ways of translating it. The Greek, for anybody who cares, is astapantelos. He saves either for all time or he saves completely. And there's no need to choose. He saves to the end, to the uttermost, to the end of the matter. Jesus saves. Verse 26 goes on to describe further the characteristics of this priest, namely Jesus. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Notice there are two aspects of this. There is a sort of a denial phase of it. He is, well, it doesn't show up in the English translation so much. He is, the word for pure actually is without evil. And the next word is he's without blame. 
whatever we have, we're evil and deserve to be blamed. He doesn't have that. But then he does have positive things. He's holy. He's separate from sin. And not only does he have that, but he is also exalted above the heavens. He's set apart. He's above it all. Furthermore, verse 27 says, that whereas the priests in the Old Covenant offered sacrifices daily, day after day, Jesus offers a sacrifice only once. And furthermore, one of the things they have to do, especially on the Day of Atonement, is to offer a sacrifice not only for their own, not only for the sins of the people, but before they can offer the sins for the people, they also have to offer a prior sacrifice for themselves. So they can even enter into God's presence to make a gift for them. But Jesus does not have to enter to make a gift for himself because he's sinless. And he offers one sacrifice and sin is definitively treated. So then, finally, in verse 28, he says, The law appoints priests as, as high priest men who are weak. But Jesus, the Son, is made perfect. We could say he's strong forever. So Jesus is the great and effective high priest. This is what he's wanted to say ever since chapter 2, verses 17. Then he wanted to say it again in chapter 5. And finally, he has said it. Chapter 8, as there are other courses where you can learn this, describes the superiority of the covenant that Jesus uh, initiates and embodies. He says in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, that... The whole Old Covenant system, the tabernacle system, is, in a sense, only a copy or a shadow of the real truth about the way the presence of God is obtained or the blessing of God and the forgiveness of God is obtained. Now, what Moses and Aaron presented was really a copy of what Moses saw. The real tabernacle, the real presence of God, the real sacrifices don't take place on earth. They take on place in heaven. The earthly things are just shadows of the eternal things. And they're put there to anticipate the real truth. Well, the real truth is what Jesus does, namely he goes with a perfect sacrifice into the heavens. And then in chapter 8, verses 7 to 13, it says that Jesus comes to enact a superior covenant and it says in verse 8, now here's Janice's question, maybe made more pointed. God found fault before him with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the old the one that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because he did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, this is the covenant he made, verse 10, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The problem, this is saying, is not, God does not, doesn't say God found fault with the law. What does it say he found fault with? He found fault with the people. The problem is not with the law per se. The problem is with what people do with the law. Now, you know this. I don't think I talked about this before. Stop me if I did. But sort of a classic illustration of this is from Romans chapter 7, which says, that when Paul says when he heard the law that said don't covet, then every covetous desire filled him. I'm going to give you an illustration of this. Uh, there was a, uh, a radio preacher I heard, a good guy, not a bad one, you know, one of the good ones, who was uh, preaching, and I heard the sermon from him on Romans 7. He lives in Southern California. 
he lives in the Orange District. And one particular year, a while ago, there was a bumper crop of oranges. Now, you know what they do when you have a bumper crop of oranges? Do you know what they do? No, that's not all they do. See, the problem is if you try to sell them all, it depresses the price too much and you go, you go bankrupt or you, you don't make any money. So what you have to do is suppress the supply to get that supply curve intersecting with the demand curve at a, where the price is higher. And so what they do is they destroy hundreds of millions of oranges on those years. They don't sell them. They don't give them to the poor. They don't ship them overseas. They rot them. They just put them in big piles and rot them. And that's their prerogative. It's their product. They can do whatever they want. And someone was doing a little report on the radio about this and saying how terrible it was and they should give it to the poor or something, you know, something like that. And then the, re the report concluded. And, you know, if you're driving by one of these on the highway and you come across one of these piles of rotting oranges and, you know, you're, you're thirsty or you're hungry and, you know, there's no place to stop and get anything to eat, it is illegal to even stop and take one of those oranges. You can be arrested and pay a big fine. At which point, for the first time in his life, after driving by those oranges for 20 years, he was seized by a desire for oranges. As the minute he was told, you cannot have it, he said, I want it. That's the problem with the law. The law provokes sin because we have rebellion in our hearts. The law God does not say God found fault with the law, found fault with the people because their hearts were not able to make proper use of the law. And the improvement in the new covenant is not that the Mosaic law is, is eradicated or struck down or simplified. The improvement is that it's written on the heart. In fact, if anything, if you look at the teachings of Jesus and Paul, um, if anything, the law is deepened as it goes farther into motives and the thoughts of a man or a woman than ever before. Now, the consequence, that was chapter 8. Did you like that? Yeah. Five minutes. And half of it was answering a question. The consequence of this is, the consequence of seeing the inadequacy of the tabernacle system, verses 1 through 10, is that things are now better. The trio of things that the priesthood is supposed to supply to people. One, two, three. Ready? One, the priesthood is supposed to offer a true atonement or sacrifice for sin. Verses 1 to 10, I'm summarizing here. Number two, unlimited access to God. And the reason why you have unlimited access to God is because, number three, the conscience is clean. There is no more guilt, no more fear. Now, if you think about the tabernacle system, that didn't really provide any of those. The very system said, everything about it said limited access, limited access, limited access. And the reason why there was limited access is because the conscience, read some verses about that earlier, the conscience was not clear. The reason why that was the case is because a final atonement had not yet been offered for sin. Let me just back up and explain this one to you. What does limited access have to do with feeling guilty? If you know you belong somewhere, do you feel guilty being there? If you know you don't belong, do you feel guilty when you go there? You're supposed to. You may look like you don't belong. 
You may smell like you don't belong. But if you belong, you're okay. When I was a pastor, I was church volleyball team with people from the church. And on the team, there was uh, somebody who got hurt all the time. And not only did he get hurt all the time, but the truth is he kind of, he's kind of a baby a little bit. <clears throat> I hate to say that. But, but you know, he kind of complained. He, he, didn't, he didn't toughen up the way most people did. And, you know, he'd fall down and carry on and so forth. And after a few years of this, we began to learn that when, I'll call him George, <clears throat> that when George fell down and cried out in pain, it wasn't the same as when somebody else did. So George, you know, got hurt and he cried out in pain and he went off to the hospital. He said, well, you know, there he goes to the hospital again. And uh, this time George didn't come back. In fact, somebody called and said, hey, guess what? George broke his ankle this time. And then we all felt bad, you know, that we, you know, <laughs> said that. And the truth is he hadn't broken his ankle. He just cried so much the radiologist said, okay, it's broken, it's broken. <laughs> That's not true. He really didn't break it. They did think it was broken for a while, and he didn't break it. But I figured, okay, you know, I've got to be a pastor. I'm his pastor, and so I've got to visit him in the hospital. Now, I was wearing my rattiest, nastiest old sweatsuit, which I hadn't washed for weeks. And it you know, had holes in it, it had grease marks on it, and my hair was wet. I didn't have the time to get a shower. And here I am walking into the hospital to visit somebody. But I want to tell you, although I didn't look the part or smell the part, I was okay. I mean, I just walked in. Where's, you know, where's George Slobinski? That wasn't his name, of course. You know, where's George? And he's back in this room. And, you know, I just walked in there. I had a big fat Bible. I got a big fat Bible. In cases like that, it helps have a big Bible. <clears throat> so I'm carrying this big Bible. And I'm just walking erect, you know, boom, boom, down the hall. Hi, Dr. So-and-so. And I, I really was partly putting it on a little because I knew I looked so bad. But the truth is, I knew I belonged. I knew that I belonged there. I knew that he was in pain. And even though he kind of made fun of him a little, he really was my friend. And so I went with confidence. But if you're dressed up and everything seems right, you have an appointment and you don't belong somewhere, you will never be comfortable there. And the whole Old Testament system basically said, you can't be at ease in the presence of God. Don't go in there. The... the, the system says you've got to be clean. You've got to be a priest. You've got to have a sacrifice. It's got to be the right day. You really can't go. And so Hebrews is meditating on this fact and saying the truth is it was, it was always there, even though people maybe didn't recognize it. It was always there that the Old Testament system was crying for something more. Was not crying for the blood of animals, which are only able, now chapter 9, verses 12, 13, 14, only able to cleanse outwardly. There was a need for an interior cleansing, the cleansing that comes by Christ. And once that happens, then, chapter 9, verse 11, he opens the heavenly sanctuary. It's open to us. He opened the real thing. The earthly tabernacle is a copy. He went through the heavens, and now we can go too. So, Access is there because, number two, he offered an atonement by his blood. Not the animal blood of animals, which only cleanse outwardly, but the atonement of blood. And as a consequence, number three, our conscience is cleansed so we can serve the living God. That little word, serve, incidentally, is not the usual word for serve. It means serve in worship, like 
worship service. It's kind of like that, where the idea is not that you serve by helping the poor or, you know, teaching some class, but the service of bowing before God. We are now free to serve in the sense of give the service of worship and humbled praise to God now that this sacrifice has been made. Our conscience is clean. Access is opened. We can worship and serve God. Chapter 9 gives us another, because he's so enthusiastic about this, he's actually now going to go through the whole thing again after a fashion and point out the excellencies of Christ another time in 9.23. I want to read 9.23 and following to you, if I may. Verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things. What I want you to do is follow along as I read and notice how these traits of Christ and his perfect sacrifice are being enumerated in rapid fashion one by one yet again here in the passage. Necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter into a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Verse 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place year after year, or every year, with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, but not to bear sin. Rather, to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You see how he runs through in rapid fashion the excellencies of Christ's sacrifice again. Its place was excellent. Where did Jesus offer his sacrifice? He offered it in heaven not simply on earth. And the number was excellent. How many did he offer? He offered one sacrifice. And how effective was it? It was perfectly effective. It annulled sin. If he comes again, is he going to come to offer another sacrifice? No. There's nothing more to be done when he returns. And so we see that Jesus' sacrifice indeed does finally take away sins. Uh, one more thing about it. When Jesus comes, what does he come with? The priests come with the blood of an animal. He comes with his own blood. Uh, the high priests in number come yearly. Jesus comes one time. Uh, the result then is that Hebrews is saying to us, what we need to do is rest in the completed work of Christ. Everything that, has been, that needs to be offered has been offered. There's nothing more to say. There's nothing more to do. The responsibility of the believer at this stage is to rest in Christ and to train our feelings. That's what he's saying. You know, there was the problem of guilt, but that really has been taken care of. Now, I tell you, there are many Christians who still struggle with the problem of guilt. They remember something they did last week, maybe last night, maybe this morning. Maybe 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. 
And it burns, the shame of it burns as if it happened one minute ago when you remember what happened, what you did. And you think, uh, you know, self-condemning thoughts. You think, God is angry with me. How could I ever serve God? How could God use me in light of what I did a number of years ago? In light of what I know, maybe very few people know it, but a few people, maybe nobody, maybe only God knows what I did, what I'm guilty of, what I'm capable of. But God says, no, a full and perfect and final sacrifice has been offered. There is no more guilt. Back to our culture. Our culture says there's no such thing as guilt, only guilt feelings. But the truth is, they slightly get at a true biblical point. For the Christian who's been covered by Christ, there is no guilt. There is only guilt feelings. And, and the truth is, we need to learn to teach ourselves to stop feeling guilty and unworthy, even though we are unworthy in ourselves, stop feeling guilty and disqualified when Christ has qualified us. His work has definitively covered our sin. Now, one reason why, talked about time already once, about you know Michael Jordan not aging and people being 17 forever in our minds. So let's think about this again. Think about time yet another way. What has happened in the past cannot be eradicated. Do you agree with that? It's kind of interesting when uh, I've seen this with hanging around football fans. I'm not really a football fan, but I've, I have a lot of friends who are. And for a while, I lived in Pe western Pennsylvania where the mighty Steelers won four Super Bowls in the 70s. Four Super Bowls in six years. And the truth is, all football fans know that their best team didn't make it to the Super Bowl. So really, they're the best team in the world five years. Now, then after that was over, and after all those Hall of Famers, you know, Terry Bradshaw and Mel Blunt and Franco Harris and all those people retired and went off to be in, the, you know, in Canton and, and bask in glory and bronze and be on TV shows. After that was over, the Steelers had a succession of, of, any, of teams that were anywhere from mediocre to bad. That'd be, you know, six and ten, eight and eight, maybe nine and seven, then seven and nine, and back to six and ten again. Our salvation and our standing with God depends on what Jesus did objectively 1,900, almost 2,000 years ago. That's what it hangs on. And subsequent acts cannot undo final acts in history. No matter how bad the team is this year, they won the championship. No matter how guilty you are this year, Jesus, your champion, Hebrews calls him that, your champion has taken care of the problem. It's objective. It's historical. History can't be changed. That is the message of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews 10 wants to work over that ground and correct, you know, you say, well, that's, boy, that's the apex. In a sense, it is. But Hebrews 10 wants to revisit that and then add a point to it. The point he wants to add is, first, he wants to recapitulate a little bit in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, make sure we get the point about these sacrifices no longer need to be offered and there's no more guilt and there's no more annual sins, and so on. That's 10, 1 to 4. But now he wants to add one more thing. The one more thing he wants to add is found in verses 5 through about 10. And he, he says, not only did Jesus offer this excellent sacrifice, there's something else he said. In verse 5, he says, When Christ came into the world, he said, 
sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Whoa, you say, hang on. All this time we've been talking about how necessary sacrifices were. What is this statement? Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. goes on to say, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And I said, here am I. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. Oh, God, what does that mean? Where does this come from? It comes from Psalm 40. Now, you all know where the sacrificial system was, was elaborated and stated and, and the law was set up. Where was it? What books? Leviticus and Exodus and also restated a little bit in uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. But basically, Exodus and Leviticus. Okay? Do you know what the Bible says, what the prophets say, and what the, some of the psalmists say about the sacrificial system? What do they sometimes say? Do you know? A little critique they, they, lent, they put that way. Maybe I'll ask you to turn to First Samuel 15. Is anybody going to get the clue when I say First Samuel 15? Do you know what's in First Samuel 15? That's right. Obedience to obey is better than sacrifice. The story is the story of Saul. And Saul, as you may recall, was charged by God to go and defeat the Amalekites. In fact, to defeat the Amalekites, what else was he charged to do? He was charged to exterminate them, to destroy them, to put them under the, a sort of a sign of the eternal final judgment of God. And after the war is over, a successful battle, Samuel comes up to greet him, and, and uh, Saul says, You know, we've had great success. All that the Lord has said, we have done. I've carried out the Lord's orders, verse 13. And Samuel replies in verse 14, Oh, really? Then what is this sound of the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the sound of the lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul says, Oh, well. I, I saved a few of those, and we don't know if he's being sincere here or not. But, you know, I saved a few of the best in order to offer a sacrifice. But we really destroyed the rest. We just saved these to sacrifice to the Lord. And then the words come to Saul. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Now you understand that human nature is such that it will take advantage of almost anything. And the sacrificial system, excellent as it was, even though partial, was, was abused by some people. You know how they abused it? It's right here. Think, think about it this way. If you were a corrupt person, but religious, and it was about a week before the Day of Atonement, when you could offer a definitive sacrifice for all the sins of the prior year, what might occur to you? This would be a really good time to sin, right? Because in just a few days, it will all be washed away. Won't that be great? And furthermore, some people reasoned, you know, we've got this sacrificial system. And all we have to do if we commit a sin is offer a sacrifice to cover it. I mean, this is almost too good to be true. Do whatever you want, then take an animal and kill it, and eat it, for goodness sakes. You have to give some to the priest, but eat it, 
and everything's fine again. What does God say? Psalm 51, you know what Psalm 51 says? About this very issue, this very problem. Turn with me if you would. Psalm 51, when he talks about uh, sacrifices. What I'm going to do, in fact, I'm going to ask if anybody, just sort of, uh, maybe at random, just somebody raise their hand and tell me you're going to turn to Jeremiah. While everybody else turns to Psalm 51, somebody else would read Jeremiah 7, verses 21 through 23. In fact, does anybody have Jeremiah 7, 21 23 already? Okay, Sandra, read in a loud voice for us. Oh, you know what? I, that won't work. I've got, to read, I've got to read everything because of the tape. Sorry about that. Uh, so let's turn first to uh, Psalm 51, and then we'll pick up Jeremiah in just a second. Psalm 51, my fingers don't want to work. Verses 16 and 17 <clears throat> say, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What does God want? The sacrifices of God are... <coughs> A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's what he really wants, not abuses of the system. Or back over in Jeremiah chapter 7, truth is I was trying to look up both of them at once. That's why my fingers wouldn't work. Here's 721. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this, this command, obey me. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed their stubborn inclinations. They went backward not forward. And when they didn't obey and went backward, then they said, oh, we've got sacrifices. And, the, and on a, really a variety of occasions, the prophets and the Psalms say, no, that's not the plan. So Jesus says, back to chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the one who came not bearing a sacrifice, but I came to do your will, O Lord. I came to offer this perfect sacrifice. Now that this sacrifice of obedience has been offered, which it is simultaneously his obedience is his sacrifice, right? Because he offered his body once by way of sheer obedience, but he also offered his body as an atonement for sin. So he wrapped the two together in one. Again, we see then the excellency of Christ, and, he, and, and then... He celebrates it all by just saying it one more time, how excellent Jesus' work is in verses 11 through 18 of chapter 10. He says, you know, the priest stands serving day by day, offering sacrifices that can never remove sins. I'll just ask you a question. When you hear the word stand, what do you think? If somebody stands offering the same sacrifice day by day, what does that imply? You're not finished. When, you're, when the work is done, you've been standing all day, what do you do? You sit down. And if you have to do the same thing over and over and over every day, what does it imply? You're never really done, right? 
But Jesus made one sacrifice, and then he sat down. It was done. The idea of finishing a job. Can I, can I ask you, how many of you here do dishes? And how many of you here wash the floor? You know, dishes aren't really that bad. The problem is, they get dirty again. Sometimes, you know, just an hour or two, you can do all the dishes, and then two hours later, how is there a sink full of dishes again? Or if you wash the floor. Washing the floor is something I do in my house, okay? I wash the floor, and, you know, you just get the sense of satisfaction. All that dirt, and those scuff marks, and the, you know, just the, you know, orange juice, and smashed raisin bran, and, you know, it's, you just, the little dust kitties, we call them in our house. Don't ask me why. You know, they're all gone. But then a sense of dissatisfaction creeps in because after an hour, the floor starts to get dirty again. You may say, be careful with that juice because I just did the floor. But you can't walk around for three days saying, be careful, be careful, be careful, I did that floor. Wouldn't it be great if you could do the definitive washing of dishes? (laughs) Say, I'm going to wash these dishes once and they'll be clean for all time. I'm going to wash this floor, and it will be clean forever to the uttermost. It will be the perfectly clean floor for all eternity. Wouldn't it be great? See, that's that's what Jesus did. He gave the definitive cleansing, and it will never get dirty again. Not that we'll never sin again. Of course we will sin. But in the sight of God, in terms of being guilty before God, In terms of being told by God, there is no access. You can't get into heaven. That will never happen. He cleansed once for all and sat down. As a woman or a man does the job and then sits down because it's done. Except he sat down forever. Because it was done forever. Now what happens? The conscience is clear at last. The covenant is now written on our hearts. Back to chapter 8. What's better about the new covenant? Among other things, it's not the law is different, but it's better because it's written on our hearts. Struggles remain. But the struggle is only the struggle of appropriating fully what God has already given us. There's a beautiful verse. It's verse 14 that the Hebrew, sorry, the Greek says it so clearly. And I'm asking you just to trust me. It shows a little bit in the English. It says in verse 14, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now that word, by one sacrifice, chapter 10, verse 14, that word he has made perfect is what's called the perfect tense, which is used in the Greek to, to describe something that is done once and the consequences stand. There's actually a verb tense they have to convey a past act that has ongoing consequences. So when he says he has made perfect forever, that's done and it stays done. We are perfect, perfectly consecrated, perfectly pure, taken to maturity in God's eyes, perfectly cleansed forever. He's done this to those who are being made holy. Because even though the gift is complete, the appropriation is a process. He's made us perfect forever, but we have to live into it and live out of it and let the process unfold. That's course now much easier because the law has been written on our hearts we do live between the ages we live glory has been announced but not yet seen we're liberated from sin but not perfectly free we are being sanctified
Um, the idea, the central genius, we might say, of James, uh, sorry, of Hebrews, to go back through the Old Testament and see uh, foreshadowings of Christ there in the Old Testament, actually started with Jesus himself. If you look through the pages of the Gospels, and I did this fairly recently with the Gospel of Matthew, on really quite a number of occasions, actually a dozen times, when he was asked why one thing or another was happening, for example, you know, when, the, uh, when he entered the uh, city of Jerusalem and the children praised him and the priest said, you know, you shouldn't let the children say Hosanna to you. He said, no, it's written from the lips of children you have ordained praise. Now, about a dozen times Jesus did that. He'd say, why are you doing this? Somebody say to him, why are you doing this? He'd say, well, because it is written. And it would be something from the Bible that was written about him, even on the cross, he quoted scripture, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, appropriating Psalm 22 to himself. Or even with his disciples on the last night, he said, you know, you're all going to be scattered because Zechariah says, strike the shepherd, scatter the sheep. So that's just three. He does that about a dozen times just in Matthew to explain things. Then at the end of his ministry, Luke 24, he says, uh, you know, after his resurrection, and, and remember on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples are with him, don't understand. And he says, you know, you're foolish, you're slow of heart to believe. Didn't you know that the Christ had to suffer these things and rise again? This was written in the, in the Law and the Prophets, which is a summary way of saying the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament testifies this had to happen. And so Jesus models it, and he tells it, and then his disciples did it. His disciples did it, for example, the very same Gospel of Matthew, on ten other occasions. Jesus says in himself twelve times, but on ten occasions, Matthew says, Jesus did this to, that the prophecy might be fulfilled in order that it might be fulfilled, saying, and so on. So that's 22 just in the Gospel of Matthew. And then Jesus encourages it to his disciples. And in, in for example, Acts chapter 1, they started doing it right away. Remember when Judas died? And uh, after, you know, committed suicide. And if you were there, you would wonder, how could this be? You know, Judas, as far as we know, performed the same miracles, right? And cast out demons, and seemed to be a disciple of Jesus in every way. You know, he, Judas did not go out, and everybody's healing people, and you know, Judas lays his hands, and nothing happens. This is—he looked like a disciple in every way. And so they're saying, how can this be? If you look at Acts 1, you, re you see that they quoted Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And those were not, you know, real common psalms. They were psalms about lament, about being betrayed and so on, not favorite psalms used widely. But they evidently searched through the whole Old, scripture, Old Testament Scripture to see if there might be something written there that shed light on what happened with Judas. So Jesus modeled it. He told his disciples to do it. They started to do it almost immediately, and, uh, and they put it in their books. And that's what's happening with Hebrews. Uh, we are told that Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament scripture. And Hebrews, guided by the Holy Spirit, is looking for that. And after fashion, you know, we should be, uh, we should be eager to do the same. Now, it's sometimes hard to, you know, I think the place to start is, of course, uh, by simply learning what's in the Bible. But it is one of our responsibilities to look at the Old Testament in light of Christ. See what it may say about him, even as Hebrews models for us.
Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.